Hi, everybody. Welcome to the WAU Most Awesome Founder podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the story that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Ries Vaans, and today I'm happy to have again with me Garrett McGowan as the co-host. Today, we welcome to the podcast Ute Stefan, entrepreneurship professor at King's Business School in London and one of the leading academic experts on the topic of entrepreneurial well-being, stress and health. Ute, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. And yeah, I look forward to your questions. Great. And we actually, we always start with the same question, namely, we always want to hear some personal storytelling about your background. So can you maybe briefly tell something about where you're coming from, how you ended up in London? That would be nice. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm originally German and I actually am a trained psychologist. So that probably explains a little bit my interest in health and well-being. Um, and I kind of moved over the years slowly west, so to speak. So I started out in Dresden, spent some time studying also in uh, UT Austin in Texas, and then kind of uh, moved to Marburg, where I did my PhD in 2008 in psychology, actually work psychology, but entrepreneurship. Um, and by then, I had already published some research on entrepreneurs' well-being and health. We did an early study also with biomarkers. But it wasn't really a topic of interest. And then so my personal journey kind of went on. I also got interested because I lived in different countries, worked with people from all over the world into how entrepreneurship looks different around the world. Um, I spent some time at KU Leuven, I think, Dries, that's where we met um, some, yes. some time ago. <laughs> and then I kind of moved eventually to the UK. Um, I held appointments at various universities in the UK, but since 2008, um, 2018, sorry, I'm um, at King's Business School and, and very happy there. And so um, maybe it's it's strange mix, a psychologist who's interested in entrepreneurship, at least that's what my psychology colleagues used to tell me, because, you yeah. know, most of work psychology deals with people at work who are employed by others. And most of clinical psychology doesn't necessarily consider work, but focuses more on, on the ill-being. And so I'm trying to be a hopeful person. <laughs> so I'm really okay. interested in how actually work can you know, make us thrive, be some source of meaning in our life, gives us purpose. And that's where you quite quickly arrive at maybe entrepreneurship is not such a bad thing. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this. Yes, it has a lot of stress and strain, but it also seems to kind of give you, you know, a sense of freedom, of being in control about, you know, the things you do, how you're going to shape um, your work with whom you work. And so, yeah, there seemed to be this puzzle that, it's probably very good, but probably also very stressful. And I, for a little while, I was an entrepreneur myself. And I think I experienced really this, your work suddenly finds itself working late in the night and you don't mind because somehow it's interesting, meaningful what you're doing, but then you're still exhausted the next day. And then if the great proposal you worked on for a client and the client tells you, I'm not interested, then somehow you feel, well, it's not just about your work. Suddenly, it's also about you, yourself as a person. So it seems to kind of involve the whole person. And mm -hmm. I might just stop there. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to ask a question that I ask a lot of entrepreneurs that come on the show, um, because you have an interesting trajectory. It's actually the complete inverse of mine, where I've been an entrepreneur my whole life that got 
obsessed with psychology and neuroscience after kind of my own burnout and my own health struggles through one of those journeys of all of, and you know, my wife is a psychologist and neuroscientist and she just doesn't get what I do and has very, very little interest in it. So what inspired a psychologist to look at this weird segment of society of entrepreneurs? What, what drove you in that direction as opposed to all of the other cool places you could have gone? So um, I think it's going to be an entrepreneurial answer in a sense. There is a lot of serendipity involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, when I came back from the U.S. and I was still studying in, in Dresden, and then suddenly there was this project um, that uh, Peter Richter, one of uh, my mentors, led, and it was about entrepreneurship at the eve of the EU extension. So we're going back quite a while, 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, the EU extended east, uh, kind of taking in a lot of countries one at once, including Poland and Czech Republic. And then in 2007, also Pol- uh, Bulgaria and Romania were added. And so the interesting thing about that setting is that actually post-communist countries and communism itself was very anti-entrepreneurial. So I was intrigued how in a culture that basically tells you, we're not interested in you doing your own thing, you're supposed to fall in line and you know obey orders effectively, um, how you can in that sort of environment forge your own path in life and be an entrepreneur. And there was a lot of bright, but also very dark entrepreneurial efforts at the time, but it was very interesting. And um, what also was striking that in all these different countries where we spoke to entrepreneurs, be it in Bulgaria, Poland, Czech Republic, in Germany, they all had one of the, the same challenges when we asked them, what you're doing for your health, for your well-being? The answer was, I just try and get enough sleep. So, and then, you know, if they were maybe a little bit more cognizant or, or had a bit more, had kind of afforded themselves to spend a bit more time thinking about the topic was, well, I'm also trying to do sport and I, I'm trying somehow to also leave some space in my life for kind of, you know, a life, so to speak, for a private life. So in a sense that, you know, the challenges were similar everywhere and also the expectations, we did a lot of work on societal expectations and they were always the same, right? These are the people who we expect to work hard and, you know, they're basically almost um, they shouldn't complain about any of the stresses because they choose their own path. So, you know, this is what you have to put up with. And, you know, you get big returns for that, allegedly, because we do know that on average entrepreneurs actually don't earn much more than if with their skills that they were employed. So, you know, this is kind of the one of the puzzles of why are people entrepreneurs? It's for a multitude of reasons. But certainly one thing that all entrepreneurs seem to share is that they, you know, they find their job very fulfilling and meaningful. And so that's one of the, how we say now a jargon, non-economic or non-pecuniary benefits of entrepreneurship. You, you bring up an interesting topic. I, I spent the first part of my career as a development economist, so I worked a lot with informal sector entrepreneurs in in Africa in particular. And as I kind of went into my PhD research on well-being and and performance, you know, I've definitely had a couple times where I I questioned myself, like, am I tackling a first world problem here? Like, how do you find 
as someone that has kind of explored entrepreneurship in different contexts around the world, do you see that this topic of well-being and uh, and burnout and some of these other kind of psychological struggles that entrepreneurs have, do you see the same patterns in emerging markets or kind of at the bottom of the pyramid type entrepreneurs? It's a very good question. And I think to some degree, I would agree. It is a bit of a first world problem, but it also shows that, you know, um, we, well, when we allow humans to flourish, then we also tend to kind of talk more about the vulnerabilities. And in the sense, in the emerging markets or base of the pyramid um, settings, you don't have that luxury. And uh, what we do see, though, is we've just done a big meta study, 40 years of research, um, and we could compile and actually look at well-being of entrepreneurs relative to being employed across 82 countries. And what we very clearly saw is it's much better to be an entrepreneur in a developed setting compared to a base of the pyramid and more generally in emerging markets where things are just a lot more volatile, a lot more uncertain. And if you, in your own work, any every day anyways, have to navigate a lot of uncertainty and risks and, you know, insecurities about how, where you go, whether this customer says yes or no, and how, you know, clients might react and so forth. Um, and then you compound that with not being able to know what's going to happen in your environment the next week, or maybe even the next day, if you're successful, then you might have, you know, various people knocking at your door who want the share of that success, not legitimately. You can't go mm -hmm. to a court or you can go to a court, but it may take over a year to get your case heard by that time you're bankrupt. So I think when, once you add all of those layers of uncertainty on, it's not surprisingly that in, you know, being an entrepreneur in the base of the permit or even in emerging markets is extra challenging. And we do see that in that setting, entrepreneurs have very high stress levels. They're still, and it's the interesting paradox, they're still also getting happiness from their work, but they're at the same time a lot more stressed compared to those in a more developed, more secure setting. Uta, you were mentioning that, that you did recently a meta-analysis, which I yeah. think is always interesting because this kind of studies, a meta-analysis means you're not doing your own research, but you're kind of, kind of compiling all the research on a certain topic and trying to identify patterns. So what are the patterns? What, what kind of overarching patterns do we see in the research on entrepreneurs and well-being? Can you share some of the insights that you are generating based on this meta-analysis? Sure. And, and at the risk of talking far too long about this, I'm going to try. So the main message is always a challenge for academics. Yes. The main message is, the main question we asked is, are you happier? working for yourself compared to working for somebody else. So as an entrepreneur okay. or as an employee and the bottom line is yes. So you are okay. happier, but there's always a, but, <laughs> um, yeah. it does depend also. So happiness isn't just one thing. Um, so, and this is what we were trying to do with the study and also to show is that all the research typically looks at something called uh, subjective well-being, which is measured as life or job satisfaction. So if mm -hmm. I, I ask you, how satisfied are you with your job on a scale from one to 10, how yeah. happy or unsatisfied are you with your life? And so on those measures, entrepreneurs in any context um, 
are, are better off, except the what we call necessity entrepreneurs. So, you know, the mm -hmm. ones who are forced into entrepreneurship because they have no alternative employment options. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of the coin, if you wish, is more kind of stress-based measures. So do you feel exhausted? Do you feel overwhelmed by what you're doing? Do you have a lot of anxiety? Do you feel depressed? Um, and on those measures, we find really that's sensitive to context. So um, on average, entrepreneurs don't appear to be more stressed, but in kind of uncertain contexts, um, there is, they are also more stressed. So they have both greater happiness, but also greater stress. And so I have one big caveat though. <laughs> um, okay. I believe those findings, but I would really love for research and Garrett, you brought already up uh, physiological measures. I would really like kind of to be able to do a meta-analysis on also physiological measures because there is one pattern we tend to see is that it is much harder for an entrepreneur to acknowledge that they're stressed and not in control yeah. when everything around them is geared up towards telling them you are in charge, right? Um, so there might be, um, it seems from some emerging research that physiologically they are more stressed, but they're not necessarily cognizant of that, right? They're not necessarily reporting that they are feeling more stressed because of the setting yeah. they're in. Um, so it, take and they may be cognizant. Or yeah. maybe you know, they, they may be cognizant as well, because mm -hmm. there is, at least in our part of the world, there's this expectation that the entrepreneurs are large and in charge. And, you know, my research, we were looking at, at heart rate variability data to try mm -hmm. to get some objective markers coming out of that. And oftentimes it was completely misaligned with the, the self-reporting that yeah. took place there. And th that actually just brings me to, to one other question in relation, because why would entrepreneurs kind of fake it till you make it, if you will, in that regard? And you had mentioned you'd kind of define these entrepreneurs as working for themselves versus working for others. I was studying and I work mostly with venture-backed entrepreneurs. And once they start taking venture capital, you know, you start losing a little bit this sense of autonomy in, in that journey. And now you're accountable to others. And, you know, I don't know if, has that, has that been something that you've explored at all? Like, would you even consider them still entrepreneurs when they no longer own the cap table of their own business and they're accountable to, to other external forces? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And there is, I've done a little bit of research in, in other settings about that, but I think we're not acknowledging actually. So, you know, the, if you want the ideal high fly success scenario and also what policymakers often want in terms of high growth, uh, entrepreneurship unicorns is, you know, you have an idea, you get VC like funding ideally, and then you go very big and create lots of jobs and hopefully, or maybe also a lot of wealth for the, the people involved invest in you. But what we don't appreciate is that actually that process can take away a lot of your control and also a lot of then the very reason why you started out um, doing things. And because the public image is maybe more about, oh, they earn a lot of money and that's it. But if we start recognizing, and I guess this is my psychological perspective, we keep finding in different contexts that entrepreneurs care about money. Maybe some small segment just cares about money, but there is a large segment that cares much more about having fulfilling work, um, feeling very beholden to the employees they employ because they know often not just the employees, but also their families. And also we see in, including in setting where everything is stacked against entrepreneurship and also against charity, we see entrepreneurs 
really kind of caring about their community and trying to give back either through charity, so a bit separate from their business, but increasingly also kind of trying to ingrain kind of some social purpose in their business. So to me, always, I think there is a real disconnect what our data shows us what entrepreneurs care about. Um, which is very rich and, you know, makes sense. They are human beings. As human beings, we have many goals in life, many different things are important to us and how they are depicted often and how policymakers also design instruments for supporting them on a very kind of narrow, you know, narrow view of entrepreneurs as, you know, driven and incentivized by money. It's, it's a very interesting topic. You know, I, uh, I like to work with and invest in entrepreneurs that, you know, tend to come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And there's an analogy, uh, if you play it for anyone out there that plays poker, it's called the short stack advantage. So when your chips are dwindling and they're getting shorter and shorter, you're kind of forced by the odds to, to play more aggressively. And that kind of triggers this uh, perspective of, you know, acceptable losses and what you're able and, and willing to lose. and and sometimes the entrepreneurs that have very little to begin with have a different risk profile because they're they've already been where they could end up going again and i know from my experience as i started raising more venture capital and and the business got larger and i had more and more employees the stress wasn't about me you know i think the empath in me kicked in and it became much more about uh this sense of responsibility for all of the people that work for me and the people that believed in me and, and invested in me. And, and in some sense, the more successful and the more we grew, the greater the burden, emotional burden that, that I kind of carried, carried with me is, do you find, do you think that's a pattern that is consistent? I, well, I think that's almost exactly what I heard from a lot of entrepreneurs when we did our study during COVID. So we did a, a large global survey of entrepreneurs during COVID. Um, effectively over 7,000 in 28 countries. And what was striking was that the types of patterns that they, you know, we did survey, but also kind of uh, asked them a bit more about the actual challenges and then followed up with a, quite a few of them over 14 days to spoke to us every evening. So, which okay. is really interesting to see the live challenges are interesting for us, but um, kind of, um, yeah, very humbling also to hear. And there were a lot of those challenges that as soon as they had employees, it was literally with COVID and the economy locking down, it's not just that, you know, my job is on the line and my family home, because that's the collateral for the business. Um, and my wife also happens to work in the business with a common um, kind of uh, trajectory or my partner. Um, and um, it was then also, but I also have to face the real possibility of having to lay off the employees whose families I also know. And I can't really, you know, I can't really compare, compute that in my mind. I don't know how to deal with that. So I, yeah, it's this deep sense of responsibility if you go beyond, beyond yourself. And in a sense, um, for the self-employed, the challenges are different. I'm not saying that they're, they're less, but they, they have different challenges. But certainly if you employ others, that's a really big pressure. The, the COVID piece is very interesting to me because when I first started doing my study, it was with the founders in, in Techstars Berlin, and we started collecting the data, and then the first COVID lockdown happened, and they all got locked down in, in their apartments. And interestingly, you know, I was, 
I was getting them to self-report on flow. So kind of optimal peak experiences and, uh, and their performance went through the roof. Like they started performing better and better and better and better. Now, granted, they didn't have the same distractions that they had prior to the lockdown. So they could sit at home in their own comfortable environment and, and work at their own schedules. But I would maybe my hypothesis behind that is these were early stage startups. So it was literally just the founder teams at that point. So they didn't have maybe as much of a burden of responsibility for having brought others into their sphere at that point. And I think that plus they're probably also in a much better place to take advantage of opportunities because we shouldn't forget that the, you know, a load of businesses suffered. So in our study, uh, 60% said they face a real threat to the survival of the business. But there was also a lot of businesses who really went through the roof, right? Who could took advantage of the opportunities, not necessarily good for the entrepreneur's well-being either, because, you know, they didn't have a weekend any longer and just worked all the time. But if you are early stage, you're a little bit more flexible and, you know, can more easily pivot. And certainly um, there were some opportunities and also some opportunities that you know, a lot of entrepreneurs found very meaningful as in helping in one shape or form the whole COVID effort where it felt suddenly oh, you're part of something bigger and that really was motivating. Maybe Uta, I maybe want to shift a bit from kind of diagnosing the problem to coming to the solutions huh? because now we have talked about how being an entrepreneur on the one hand is, is nice because you have a lot of autonomy, you have control over your work, but at the same time, it comes at a cost, namely stress, especially when you're in the VC backed kind of environment and where the risk of burnout is, is looming. So my question would be, what do we know from the research on kind of how to avoid that you end up in a burnout? What, what kind of strategies, interventions can we implement to deal with the stress that is maybe inherently there, but at least that it does not start affecting your mental health and can trigger uh, depression or whatever. I think, um, so the first thing is to say that there's no one strategy because it depends a bit on the type of entrepreneur and also on the type of person you are. But if you kind of consider that on average, um, you know, you have to have a certain sense of achievement, motivation to get into entrepreneurship. Um, yeah. And so you want to do things, you want to be successful. And also when you are successful, you get a huge boost for your well-being um, and a you know, real energy boost because you know it's due to you. At the same time, nobody is going to pat you on the back and say, well done because you don't have this, you know, leader you report to. Um, so you have to create your own incentives in a way, because otherwise you can always do more, right? You can always have more market share. You can always add more employees. You can always do more. And so you at risk of getting into a, nothing is ever good enough and I need to work more. And so to not get into this hamster wheel, which is why I'm doing this with my fingers, is um, to kind of make sure that you have um, set your own goals so that you know when you're successful. And importantly, that you can actually celebrate those successes, right? And say, mm -hmm. now I have achieved that much revenue. That's great. 
actually that's what I wanted to achieve at the end of the year. We're only in month seven and, you know, you should go out and celebrate. So really kind of to keep yourself motivated, but also to give yourself these experiences of, oh, this is great and this is rewarding. Um, and then the other element is you, because you don't have any clear boundaries, right? With autonomy comes also the option to work whenever for how long you want late into the night and so forth and so what we know from research more generally is that stress can be um short-term great performance enhancing and so you might not mind the one night maybe even the two nights and you get you know an energy boost because you feel you've achieved something sent something off maybe got even positive feedback on it but in the long term, these high levels of stress, we know just wear the body out. So there's nice studies that are they're looking at something called allostatic load, which is basically an early response. So a state that we don't necessarily feel yet. We're also not clinically ill yet, but it's the mm-hmm. way to illness, so to speak. And yeah. um, we know that entrepreneurs are more often, so they have higher allostatic load than employees. So one of the things you can do is just build up routines that allow you to deal with the stress, as in give yourself a little bit of space to recover and to push the allostatic load down, so to speak, so that you're in the long term, not at risk of illness. So it's not one thing. It's not one kind of quick fix. But the nice thing is it's also not a huge thing that you need to add now to your to-do list because it is about building up these little routines that, you know, maybe we know that sleep is important so that you actually Give yourself a time when you stop working, do deliberately something else to be able to de- detach from work and really get high quality sleep. And so a lot mm-hmm. of this is about routines and kind of, you know, going to bed at always the same time, waking up at always the same time, but also throughout your work day, trying to build routines as in, um, you know, nobody is structuring the day for you. So kind of try and restructure your day that can you maybe go for a little small walk in the morning or at lunchtime so that you get a bit of exercise as well. And actually research shows that if you take um, over an hour, a five minute mini break every hour, and you can train yourself that you're almost more productive because you know that this break is coming and uh, you detach even for five minutes and you'd be surprised if you've worked on a problem maybe and were stuck. If you come back after those five minutes, even then you already have new ideas. And so what we also find is that all of these things, which, which sound like, mm, you know, maybe it's just nice to look after my well-being, we find that those things, including high quality sleep, um, actually makes you more creative as an entrepreneur. So we fitted entrepreneurs with sleep trackers because, you know, okay. objective sleep quality is, is quite good to measure because it doesn't necessarily correlate with how you subjectively experience your sleep. And we found that on nights where the entrepreneurs slept more, had higher quality sleep, the next day, they actually were more creative in their business. So it's not a trade-off, but it really is an investment in yourself, in your own productivity, and therefore in your business um, as, you know, in your business success, in your business um, creativity and innovation potential. Wow, you, you talked about so many things I want to ask about that. <laughs> um, because I think a lot of these topics to me have kind of, are have or two-sided coins that get really interesting for the entrepreneur in, in practice. Like for, for example, you kind of talked about the, something like a Pomodoro technique, right? Where you take a break for five minutes and you then you work for a while. And I think the other side of that coin is that 
you know, you, you start getting into deep focus and then you break that focus. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs will push back on, on those types of strategies and say, Hey, you know, it took me 45 minutes to get into the groove. I'm finally in the groove. I, I don't want to take a break because I'm, I'm kind of rolling there, you know? And, and I think the, you talked about two fundamental pieces, which are, are motivation and, and goals. Um, and goals are, are such an interesting, uh, I think an interesting framework to think about from the entrepreneurial perspective, right? Because it's super important to have these North stars and, and to have these small wins that you create along the way. The problem is, is I think people don't know how to set them very effectively. And as a result, they set goals that they consistently don't achieve because they're operating in environments of uncertainty, which thus leads to greater stresses, which thus leads to less sleep. And then you start getting this feedback loop that becomes really problematic. So I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and, and teach them to set OKRs, right? Where the goals are not set in stone and, and they need to be adaptable over time. I mean, do you find any kind of specific techniques like that? that can be effective in kind of not so much in the lifestyle side, but priming yourself psychologically for the experience. You know, it's like motivation, understanding the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, understanding what goals are good, what aren't, how to kind of differentiate between the pitfalls that can arise from those topics and the, the positive directions. I think on a general level, it's always good, especially in the early stages to get mentoring because, you know, experienced entrepreneurs have done that have been there they know that okay you're not going to take over the world <laughs> next year um and you know you're not going to get to a million revenue next year either so i think it's good to kind of have these touch points and actually the same almost with your well-being it may not be the mentors depending on how sensitive they are to the well-being topic although most vcs you know if they've been entrepreneurs themselves they will have stories of burnout as well so um it's just nothing that is necessarily talked about um but also you know people close to you can be quite a good gauge for your own well-being so kind of saying oh maybe you know you're not enjoying this any longer um you just seem to work you feel guilty when you're not working um and you know kind of trying to push through you're not really celebrating any achievements and any milestones any longer so what's going on so these are all the early signs that kind of take you eventually to burnout so it's about spotting those early signs if you're consistently not sleeping well kind of trying to take a step back and think okay is this actually working for me and what i find i mean depends on the individual um, it can be quite useful. So I like tracking all sorts of things. I have a sleep tracker because mm -hmm. I don't believe, you know, myself. And then um, <laughs> if you see these trends and you see also your resting heart rate going up and up and up, you kind of have a signal that maybe, you know, maybe I need to change something. And it's really, I think the, the key for me is to get in, you know, be clear about that, um, your well-being isn't really something that's separate, but it's really a value driver of your business. And I think once you have that clear in your mind, it's not something extra you do, but actually looking after yourself becomes an essential part of, um, you know, how you do business. And for the supporters, right? So for the VCs, we have now VCs who are also investing actually in supporting entrepreneurs to avoid burnout because they clearly see it as a, um, way to de-risk their investment. What good is a business mm -hmm. 
everybody always says they're investing in the idea, but also in the people taking it forward. And so what good is the idea if you don't have the people any longer to take it forward? Maybe Garrett, a question to you, because as you mentioned before, you have been in a burnout uh, based on uh, building a VC-backed venture. And so Ute gives kind of all these recommendations about what you can do to avoid it. Where did you go wrong and what are you doing different nowadays? Wow, that's a, I could be here for an hour on that topic. <laughs> so the executive summary. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that was my first venture back business and mm. it, it came with a lot of naivety. Um, mm. But it also, and it was something I was going to ask Uta about, but it, it also, I would say, I came into it with a, a false understanding of what that experience was going to be like. And, you know, I'm, I'm in my late 40s. I kind of grew up in a generation, especially, you know, being half American, where there's this, like, you got to be the hardest working guy in the room mentality. And it's what I now affectionately call hustle porn, mm. right? It's the Elon Musk saying you're chewing on glass and staring into the abyss and the Gary Vaynerchuk's <laughs> of the world, right? So that was the that was the narrative that was spinning around and it was the narrative I was brought up with from my, yeah. my father as well. You have to work, 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 work. So I took that and, and fully ran with it. And, you know, it was okay at first because I was so, it was a social impact venture. I was so extremely motivated by it and passionate by it. Where it all started to change for me was when I started raising millions in, in venture capital. The organization grew, you know, we were enterprise, we were dealing with fortune 500 companies, everything had, I thought everything had to be perfect. I was the first guy in and the last guy out every day. And, and interestingly, it took many years of reflection, but the big trigger for me happened when I realized that it wasn't just me and my mental health was becoming contagious. Yeah. And because I was even, I was telling my employees, like, don't do what I do. You know, mm -hmm. this is my business. I own 70% of this business. Like I'm just because I'm here early and leaving late, go home to your families. I set this tacit expectation mm -hmm. to my, to my entire team. And it's when I started seeing, you know, the 25 other people in my office starting to suffer is when it kind of became unbearable for me because mm -hmm. I realized it wasn't just me wrecking me and it was me having an impact on others. Of course, you know, years later, I realized exercise suffered, you know, probably more alcohol consumption for social and, and business events, like eating in airports and traveling and, you know, li living in hotels 200 days a year. So there was this kind of, uh, I guess, all of the negative influences were coming from every direction, but it wasn't, in the end, the, the health and fitness was a symptom and it wasn't the cause. The cause for me was this underlying stress that I was, you know, hurting the people that I was actually trying to help. And then the purpose started to disappear. And, you know, it becomes this snowball in a way. If the, if the people at the top that are leading the organization and setting the tone and setting the culture, if they're unhealthy, I think it inevitably the whole organization starts to fall apart. So what Utu has talk, been talking about is really interesting to me because I think there was such a history in management theory looking at uh, the firm as the unit of analysis and not looking at the individual as much um, as a key component and a key driver of the firm, specifically the entrepreneur. 
So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, the big message for me is like for founders is like they have to take care of their their health, happiness, and well-being, because in the end, that is going to not only affect the outcome of the business, but it's going to affect the livelihoods and the well-being of all the, the people around them. And for me, that was just, as an empath, I think that was just too much to bear. Yeah. And, and now the snowball is again running because you're building a new venture. So what, how, because Ute was saying you need to identify early the signals and make sure that you have this discipline to avoid that you get into this hamster wheel. So, so what kind of strategies do you apply to make sure that you don't get again into the hamster wheel? It's funny, I was meeting with a, a founder in my portfolio last night, and I had this very conversation and, and I distill it down to two very simple things. And it's that I protect the two things that I can't buy. And that's my health and my time. Mm. And if I structure my time, and I'm very disciplined with the way I manage my time and my schedule. Um, and of course, I maintain my health and fitness, and I eat right and sleep and, and exercise, I track everything meticulously, as well. I'm totally a data nerd when it when it comes to that. But more importantly, what I do now is I used to have my work schedule, and then I tried to schedule in my non work stuff. And I flipped it. Mm. So what I have now is like, I have hours blocked off in my calendar, this is like wife time, and this is me time and exercise time. And that is the part that's non-negotiable because I know if I don't make that non-negotiable, the work will eventually creep into that. And by prioritizing life outside of work above work, that gives me kind of a bit more ownership and I, I don't have the risk of, you know, deadlines and uncertainties taking over. Yeah. Ute, does that make sense to you, that strategy, or do you see a risk towards failure? <laughs> no, no, I think uh, and on a personal level, so I've um, also gone through a burnout and that was really the way to get crawl out of it, is probably the best mm. way to describe it, is to, <laughs> to um, get clarity about your goals in life eventually, right? Do you want work to take everything over or do you, you know, do you find it valuable to spend time with your loved ones, which sounds crazy, but, uh, you know, also as academics, I mean, I don't want to put this on the same level as entrepreneurs, but our work has very few boundaries and we can always do more. And it is interesting from what you said, Garrett, that also for me, it was one of the triggers was I actually was doing something, you know, where I felt, okay, this has more meaning. I'm actually supporting others through a very difficult phase. And yeah. Um, so, and kind of just making this choice of, right. I'm, I did exactly what you said. I blocked time and I said, I'm not going to work going to try at least for a while not to work on weekends any longer. Um, and, you know, I'm, when something comes in and I'm committing to something, then something else needs to go out of my agenda because there is no more space for any, you know, mm-hmm. additional things. And I often, I said yes too often to too many things. And that meant I was working late in the evening or on the weekends. And um, yeah, that didn't make for, for anything I'm not going to say work-life balance because that's a very subjective thing, but it kind of impaired, you know, it had negative effects on the the loved ones around me. And yeah, I think that's why it has to stop. I I think you mentioned something interesting as well, too, is, you know, how I'm not going to work on weekends anymore. I'm not going to work on on late nights anymore. And that actually doesn't bother me as much because what I've deliberately done is I've amortized my recovery. So what I used to do is I would work all week and then I would 
take the weekend and I would do my sport and I would eat right and exercise and, and whatnot. And, and I realized that two, three days of recovery couldn't make up for the four or five days of, of grinding. So now what I deliberately do is I block it off every single day because that's helping to mitigate the effects of the stress each day. So by midday Saturday, I'm, I'm normal again. And I can see it in my, my HRV. You know, I wake up Monday morning and it's really high. And over the course of the week, it starts to drop and drop and drop. But it used to drop precipitously. And now because I have a two-hour break every day where I'm exercising and going for a walk in the sunshine and spending time with my loved ones, it's a much much more gradual and, and slower decline. And I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs miss is Monday to, because our society and our culture is set up that Monday to Friday you work, Saturday, Sunday you rest. But I think in a high pressure environment with a lot of uncertainty where work can easily take over, that becomes extremely problematic because you never know. There may be that Sunday where you have to prepare for a big meeting or a pitch on Monday. Yeah, I, absolutely. And it's a, uh... It's really for in terms of kind of getting a handle on the physiological effects of stress. That's really the strategy that works best, right? Doing a little bit every day as opposed to, you know, trying to block off time. And that kind of responds to how our physiology works. So that's absolutely. And if you also one of the indicators is not just if you don't track your heart rate, but maybe you you kind of get a sense of sleep. So if you on the weekend um, sleep disproportionately longer than during the week, so it's kind of you're trying to make up for a sleep deficit. That's also a sign that, you know, somehow the balance isn't quite right because you can't recoup all the, the missed sleep within two days. And so, yeah, if you don't feel, if you constantly feel exhausted, which is what happens if you, even if you had a weekend off, but if you kind of overstretch yourself during the week, then you're not productive. Maybe I want to briefly touch upon something that Garrett said, uh, that he comes from this hustle culture where it was kind of seen as, as good to, to work very hard, to hustle. I think today, especially in Germany, and I don't know to what extent you're, you're still following that kind of discussions, there's a kind of the opposite discussion, namely a discussion about Generation Z and that they are not willing to hustle and that they are actually sitting on a beach in Bali, surfing and building a startup at the same time. And then I would say you have some people in the venture scene, we had, for instance, Frank Taylor on the podcast, who is very critical about that approach. We're saying like, you look, if you're not willing to hustle like crazy, you will never build a successful startup. So we see kind of a different discussion going on where I would say the, the, the generation we are like the 40 plus is looking a bit at generation Z and thinking like, guys, please don't start talking about a four day week. Uh, you need to work hard if you want to accomplish something. I, I don't know to what extent, what, what is your position in that discussion? Do you have any opinion about that? Well, I think the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship or, you know, in all its different forms is that there's space for everyone. So, you know, mm. if, if you decide that what's important in your life is the beach in Bali and you also want to, you know, um, do a startup along the way, I mean, you're not hurting anybody. So why not? And for somebody else, you know, you may not achieve the unicorn status with that, but maybe yeah. that's not what you want in life and that's fine. And I really think that's the great thing about entrepreneurship, that you can tailor the work if you do it right and don't let the work take over, um, you know, you can tailor it to to what you find important. And, you know, mm -hmm. we, we live in a society where that should be possible and great. 
And I think yeah. actually I would flip it if we kind of emphasize this hustle and grind culture too much, we're actually losing out with quite significant economic implications. We're losing out on a large part of potential entrepreneurs who will never select and opt into entrepreneurship because they don't see themselves as doing that type of work. And um, that maybe Generation said, I know also that for many women entrepreneurs, they're often put off because all the, the role models we dis seem to discuss are the, the Elon Musk type white men. Yeah. They don't see themselves represented. There's a large minor uh, share of ethnic um, minority who kind of think, oh, this isn't me. Um, I have a different value set. Um, and so, you know, if all those people, even if they're just in quotation marks, self-employed, they still create a job for themselves and make it, a, a, you know, a meaningful life setting out of that. So why not? Who are we to judge? And for policymakers, I think that's a real kind of should be a real consideration because we know in the UK, for instance, um, immigrants start on uh, businesses at a higher rate at the, compared to the domestic population. And, you know, if they, if they go down the route of employing people, they're creating jobs, they're creating economic value. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you a question because you, you have such rich experience in, in different contexts internationally and in, in different cultures. And I want to throw a, a sociological variable in there and, and kind of get your feedback on it. Um, as a half American, half German who built, I've built companies in four different countries. There's one variable that I find to be, um, very, very interesting in how it affects entrepreneurs and it's the culture around failure. Have you seen any research or participated in any research that looks at correlations between failure culture and the stressors and the challenges that, that entrepreneurs have in their journeys? So we're just starting to look at that is the honest answer. But what I can tell you, so some research I did actually for my PhD was quite interesting. So um, we looked at what sort of cultures um, create more entrepreneurs. So just a very basic startups, innovative startups, opportunity startups, so that sort of thing across countries. And so if I'd asked you, you'd probably say most entrepreneurial country in the world, best culture, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know this, I know this is a trick question, but yeah. I would say probably for high growth entrepreneurship, I would say the US. Right. right. Yes. So, and the US is typically, you know, it, it's an individualistic country, very performance oriented. Um, what you see is that the level of startup, you know, opportunity startups, all of that is actually highest in countries that have something what we call a socially supportive culture, which is more mm -hmm. forgiving which tolerates, you know, if you make a mistake, uh, where people are supportive and in a, in a very simple term, they're just nice, but it means they're, it's easier to get in touch even with strangers. And if you think of entrepreneurship at large, most entrepreneurs are actually helped by the three Fs, family, friends, and fools who give mm -hmm. either a helping hand, so instrumental support, maybe a bit of investment, a lot of emotional support. And so, it's in those sort of cultures that entrepreneurship seems to thrive. And I would go out on a limb. I think that may also generalize ultimately to um, what sort of cultures we see uh, supporting entrepreneurs' well-being. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Ute, you were talking before about strategies to avoid burnout, to deal with stress. And the strategies that you mentioned, I would say, sound all quite reasonable and healthy. Now, 
when we look, especially I think to Silicon Valley nowadays, we see also another approach that is applied by entrepreneurs, namely they start taking specific drugs like ketamine to deal with depression or they take all kinds of supplements to uh, kind of compensate for the lifestyle they have. Is there already any research out there that, that says something about the implications of that or is it too early for that? Oh, wow. Uh, so I think two answers. The first answer, I'm actually um, a strategic advisor to something called the Founder Mental Health Pledge, which comes out of okay. Silicon Valley, which has signed up okay. over 600 organizations. And the point is to destigmatize conversations around mental health, fundamental health. The mm -hmm. VCs signed up on that. And the second aim is to actually make mental health expenses business expenses so that it becomes very natural that you spend money on yourself so to speak and invest in your own well-being um, from my perspective and everybody's different investing that into drugs i don't think is the best way forward um, both because all medicines have side effects but also there's um, just a new wave of studies that came out here. For instance, if you take antidepressants, actually getting off the antidepressants is really difficult. And some, mm. not all people react the same way, but there are certain side effects that actually eventually make falling back into depression more likely. So I guess there is, yeah, as usual in life, no quick fixes. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I think everybody needs to make an informed decision, but I think in the long run, you know, kind of building up daily routines might be a, a, a more sustainable path to well-being yeah. and thriving in entrepreneurship. Um, but it is certainly true, I guess, with all the discussion, you know, we talked about building up routines, going regularly for a walk, kind of checking your sleep and all of this. I think what I don't want people to take away, this is like another to-do. It's another hard goal that they have to meet. I think there's also an important kind of, um, well, there's a need for self-compassion, right? So if you sleep badly a night, that's just life. The world doesn't come to an end. You're not going to be super stressed the next day. You can function yeah. without one poor night, uh, with one, one good night of sleep. So it's no, also that's a very good point because to be honest, I'm a person that doesn't have any trackers. And why? Because I think I will get very stressed by these trackers. <laughs> so if the trackers sound indicating that you had a one a night, bad night's sleep, I would start worrying about that. Whereas now, simply because I don't know, I don't worry about it. So that I see sometimes as the potential downside of really tracking all these things that, that it becomes a goal as such. And in that way, it actually contributes to your stress instead of avoiding the stress. And that's really where you need to know yourself. So if you are mm -hmm. somebody who would then kind of beat themselves up, if not reaching the 10,000 steps or whatever, um, I yeah. think we've reduced this to 5,000 at the moment. If the research is still ongoing. This is the other thing. All these targets, they because of course we mm -hmm. need to have some rules of thumb, but there is a load of individual variation, right? Some people only need seven hours. Other people need eight and a half hours sleep. So you, it's really also a process of finding out, but then also being compassionate about it and the same with the goals or you know i work with the the short break system um i can click this away sometimes when i'm in yeah. deep concentration writing something i you know i'm very good at clicking this away but i'm also <laughs> mindful that you know after two hours and it comes up again i'm thinking okay i've clicked it away so many times i now need to have a break and actually every time i find it does benefit you know kind of when i come back I seem to have 
a much quicker way into whatever I was trying to do and, and solve it much more quickly. And I think once you build up these experiences, it becomes self-reinforcing, self right? So then that's really what you want. Um, that's the spiral you want to go down. You don't want to go down the, okay, I need to work more because I haven't achieved that particular goal this day. I need to spend two more hours. Then you don't get enough sleep. Maybe you wake up at four o'clock in the morning because you're still thinking about the problem. And then, you know, that's not been restful. The next day you're trying again to work on this, but because you're so exhausted, you can't, you know, think of anything good to do there. You get stuck, you get frustrated, you beat yourself up. You, yeah, maybe you're not eating well because you're frustrated. You're eating all sorts of high energy things that make you feel better short time. And you can see how that then spirals out over the long term. So yeah, yeah. everybody has a bad day. We <laughs> even have a bad week where you, you know, may yeah. throw all of this um, away, but then it's the, in the long term, the next week, do you make a kind of conscious choice to be kind to yourself and give yourself a bit of space and the breaks you need, a bit of more exercise and so forth. Yeah, I think you touched on a great point. There's so much dogma that's taking place right now, especially as we do have these technologies at our, you know, in our hands. I noticed a lot of the entrepreneurs that I gave these fitness trackers to were really uncomfortable when they saw, when they actually started seeing the data behind them. And it, it was indeed stressing them out. And to me, you have to, you have to combine this type of data with an evolving sense of self-awareness right? It doesn't work without that. What I tell a lot of entrepreneurs is, you know, we get in this habit of getting into deep focus, we get really deep into the weeds and into the details and lost in, in execution, and being able to, you know, whether it's five minutes every hour, or, or a couple times a day, being able to zoom out to the 10,000 foot view, and look at the big picture, including yourself within that big picture, and you start to really understand the significance or the importance because sometimes tasks that seem so, you know, immediately important. And uh, when you zoom out, you realize it's just a small piece of a, a much bigger picture. So I, you know, we're going to get more and more data, we're going to get more and more technology to enable us. But my big fear is that, you know, we become less aware of the psychological tools that are at our disposal right? The being able to kind of see ourselves through different lenses, zoom out, see the big picture, reframe. I love the Brad Stolberg talks about this, uh, the growth equation, stress plus recovery equals growth, right? It's kind of like in, in the gym, you don't, your muscles don't grow from lifting weights, your muscles grow sleeping that night. And I think there's similar muscles that entrepreneurs have as well, you know, and you can think of it in the different layers of well-being that that same algorithm applies to the physical, to the mental, to the emotional. And, you know, stress plus mindfulness is going to create wisdom and, and deeper awareness. But really having that ability to look to look at the big picture, to take a mindful kind of approach to things, I think is going to be uh, that combined with data can be really, really powerful. But if you're if you're missing that piece, you're probably just going to exacerbate the problem in the first place. Absolutely. And in a, in a way, you do need to make space, right, to consciously reflect on where you're at and, you know, to experience that growth, just running down the hamster wheel every day, every week, you kind of lose sight of what your long term aims are. So it's also, I guess, the one plea I would make is just kind of make space every once in a while to make sure you're still on track with what you actually set out to do. Yes. Awesome. 
I think this was a great conversation and, and both Garrett and Ute also thanks for, for being your openness in, in kind of your, your own struggles. To be honest, I, I didn't yet have a burnout and of course, sometimes you come close to it and I think <laughs> lucky to some extent to avoid it. I think it's also part of being lucky, you know, if, if you sometimes have circumstances that come together, it can happen even if you have the best intentions to avoid it. So I don't think it's something to be proud of if you didn't have it, but you're also a bit lucky. But really, thank you for, for sharing openly the how you have dealt with it, because I think that can really help our audience. Now, to end the episode, we always have the same question, Ute. Uh, we want to ask you if you have specific books or podcasts that you can recommend, stuff that is on your table at the moment before you go to sleep. Probably uh, nothing you want to read. It's about um, <laughs> how, um, yeah, so it's a bit controversial book, but it's about um, over medicating on mental illness and actually seeing mm -hmm. ill being yeah. and, you know, being down as part of the normal human experience. Yeah. So I think it's Absolutely. a fine line. If, if you really have clinical depression, you clearly need med medication. That's it. Yeah. Um, but I think over the long term, you also then need support. Um, there are really good therapies. Uh, cognitive behavior therapy has really good evidence base behind it to actually, you know, get back into your life. So I think it's both, you know, when we talk about mental health and well-being, I think in any population, we just need to be mindful that we're not going to be happy every day. That's not human, but it's also not human to feel horrible every day. So it's yeah. about finding the balance. In a way, you need the downsides to also know the upsides. Um, yeah. And I think my big plea for entrepreneurs is just be mindful of that, that there are ups and downs. And when the downs become too deep and too long, do something about it, maybe build up little routines. They don't take a lot of time so that you kind of safeguard your well-being and build a flourishing company for yourself and for others. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in, in our current society with Instagram and other social media, it's not always easy to realize that being down sometimes is also perfectly okay, not? Yeah, exactly. Great. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, being here, for sharing all your insights that you have, also from the academic perspective. I think that's very valuable also for our audience. And so I hope our listeners also enjoyed this podcast and we hope to have you all back for our next episode. Bye. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Ciao.